Uh, ladies and gentlemen, could I have your attention, please? Um, excuse me. Uh, um. Quiet! Well, you, you got to project from the diaphragm. Thank you, Rizzo. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. They say that Hollywood is a town built on dreams. And one of his greatest dreamers was Walt Disney. We are developing Hakuna Matata Lakeside Village. So no problems, no worries, home of the good life. During your mission, you will be enclosed inside X-2 flight trainers that produce deep space flying conditions, such as turbulence and G-forces. my friends, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 160 for the week of March 7th, 2010. With the Academy Awards having honored the very best in the filmmaking industry recently, it's appropriate that this week I'm joined by two legends of Disney feature film animation, Don Hahn animator, director, and producer of such films as Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Beauty and the Beast, and The Lion King, talks with me about his career at Disney, including being trained by Disney's nine old men, creating Roger Rabbit, and his hand in the renaissance of Disney animation that began in the mid-80s. We also talk about his newest project, Waking Sleeping Beauty, a documentary chronicling and celebrating that time and one that he produced with my next guest, Peter Schneider. The former president of the Walt Disney Studios talks about the rise and fall of animation during Disney's second golden age as well as working with people like Michael Eisner, John Lasseter, Roy Disney, and Jerry Katzenberg. We discuss the new film and how it tells the stories never before told from the creative minds that actually lived it. I'll have some announcements at the end of the show before playing more of your voicemails, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. For many people, their love of Disney began, and to this day is still based on, the magic of Disney animation. And not since the introduction of Snow White in 1939, and the films that followed in the early 40s like Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi, did the Walt Disney Company have such a meteoric rise and success as they did during the 10 years between 1984 and 1994. A true golden age of Disney animation, the films and the people that created them held to Walt Disney's tenets that story be paramount and coupled with brilliant animation, memorable music and classic characters made for a renaissance for animation as a medium. And one of the people who was instrumental during that period was producer Don Hahn. After starting out as an animator on films like Pete's Dragon in 1977 he went on to produce Who Framed Roger Rabbit and some of Disney's most successful animated films ever, including The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. And like classic fairy tales and Disney films, he too has a story to tell, not just about his own career at Disney, but those of the Disney company and the true cast of characters that helped create Disney's second golden age. And he's joining me today to talk about his story and the story of the people in his new documentary film, Waking Sleeping Beauty, which opens in limited release on March 26th. So it is my pleasure to welcome producer Don Hahn to the WDW Radio Show. Don, good morning and welcome. Good morning. How are you, Dave? 
I'm doing great. And it uh, it really is a pleasure to speak to you because first and foremost, I, I am an enthusiast and, and fan of Disney animation. So this is a real thrill for me. Oh, great. And I certainly want to talk to you because I'm very curious to learn more about Waking Sleeping Beauty because I want to hear, we want to hear from somebody who was there, an instrumental as part of that process that went on over at the studios. We're going to have Peter Schneider join us in a little bit. But first, I want to talk to you about your early background and how did you first get interested in and then involved in animation? Well, I think I always loved animation as a kid, like so many of us did. Um, I was a musician, though, as a kid, and I went to college to study music and art also. So I studied painting and, um, you know, drawing, and I got a chance to do a summer job at Disney, and this was back in the mid-70s. And it was a time when all the uh, animators who worked with Walt Disney were still at the studio. So uh, Ward Kimball and Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, Mill Call were all still there. And uh, and I think those were the guys that really got me excited about animation because they were, uh, you know, still making films. I think we were working on Rescuers at the time. And I was just a kid, and I got them coffee, and I could stop and talk to them and kind of hear what was exciting to them about what they were doing. And um, it was really inspiring. It was really was and still is a really magical place to work. So you start out at this summer intern around age 20 or so, uh, really, like you said, a musician, but you get to learn animation from people like, you know, some of those who are sort of that next generation of animators like Don Bluth and people who are listening. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the people um, at the time, there was a a, a little generation gap at the studio. You had uh, guys in their... You know, 60s probably. Uh, one of my first jobs was working with Wooly Reiserman, who was was the producer director of uh, you know Jungle Book and Aristocats and Robin Hood and some of those movies. And uh, and it was really interesting because I was you know 20 or 21, and uh, he was obviously a really mature artist working at the top of his game. And and other people were streaming into the studio at the same time: Glenn Keane and John Lasseter and Brad Bird and uh, you know, so many of the familiar names from the leadership of animation today were starting at the studio in the 1970s as they came out of CalArts. And uh, so it was a, a really dynamic time, a lot of talent in the studio. So do you think it maybe was your good fortune to be able to learn from guys who were part of the nine old men and still be there for that infusion of new blood like you said you mentioned names like brad bird and john lasseter and to work with somebody like a don bluth do you think that helped you be part of this renaissance that we're going to talk about in the 80s yeah certainly i think i think you're always especially as an artist always affected by the people around you and inspired by the people around you um i and it's just the, the dynamic of the studio in the late 70s and early 80s was uh it was just a different place it was a very warm, uh, small, somewhat family-run company, and, um, you know, with all the good that that brings. But at the same time, we were making animated films maybe once every four years, and uh, so the pace was a little bit slower, a little more uh, relaxed, and uh, and the talent was not always challenged. So you find people like John Lasseter leaving the studio, uh, Tim Burton leaving the studio, Brad Bird eventually leaving the studio, and, and a lot of disillusionment with uh, what was going on there, a feeling that we weren't being challenged or weren't having opportunities. And uh, and I think that led to, um, you know, this period of time from the 80s to the 90s when new management came in and really kicked it into gear. And, um, and it really was like a gasoline fire then. I think all the potential was there, and I think the desire was there. But... Um, when Roy Disney brought in Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg and Frank Wells, it became this this just firestorm of activity um, that led to some really pretty pretty great work, I think. And again, too, you know, you're learning from somebody like a Wooly Reitherman who really, you know, Walt kind of tapped him as the person to carry the animation forward and to make sure the artists were always respected. So you come with, with that animation background, you then sort of move into another role where you make the magic happen by marrying all the animation and elements as a producer. Was there 
out of the two roles, was there one that you enjoyed more, and if so, why? Well, I, I, my idols growing up were Walt Disney and Jim Henson and people like that, and I always, uh, I, I knew pretty early on I wasn't going to be a great artist, a great animator like a Glenn Keane or an Andrea Stasia, and I enjoyed working with people, and I enjoyed being, uh, uh, you know, kind of a conductor of an orchestra, I guess would be the word. Um, so uh, pretty pretty early I migrated into, um, you know, producing and managing these films, which I really like a lot, and that also allowed me to uh, use my uh, musical background and, you know, just just a number of things that I enjoyed as opposed to sitting at a drawing board all day long. I have high, the highest respect for people to do, because it's really hard, and it's an amazing talent, and I knew that I wasn't going to be that person. So, um, and that, that's when I kind of moved into producing and, and never looked back. And certainly working with Wooly was um, really inspiring, because he was the guy that Walt Disney tapped to uh, make these movies, and I really respected him and learned a lot from him. Well, you, to, to carry forward your metaphor of, of conducting an orchestra, let's talk about one of the movies specifically that you had a hand in, pardon the pun, Tell us about Roger Rabbit. I, I've heard you talk about it as, as the most difficult film of your career. I can understand probably why. Well, it, it, it was. I think it's, uh, you know, it's probably the avatar of its day in terms of its uh, kind of technical breakthrough. I was the associate producer on that movie and, and produced the animation on it. And um, it, it was interesting because the animation wasn't done at Disney in Los Angeles. Um, Bob Zemeckis, the great director who directed Back to the Future and um, uh, Forrest Gump, and, and, and at the time, he really wanted a different style. He didn't want to do it in the Disney style, because the story was about animators' uh, styles like Chuck Jones and Tex Avery and Bob Clampett, and so we went to Richard Williams, who was, uh, uh, was and still is an amazing animator uh, who lived in London at the time, set up shop there, and for two years recruited this ragtag team of animators from across Europe and the United States to, um, to animate. And, and it, every day was an experiment. Every day was new on Roger Rabbit. You had to kind of make up the process of making the movie while you were making the movie. Um, so it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of mistakes, a lot of people coming and going. And uh, But the result was uh, really fresh. And I think people not only liked the movie, but it reminded them how much they loved animation. And it was the beginning, probably, of people going back to the theater just to see animation. Well, l- let me ask you this. As somebody who comes from a very traditional animation background because of how you learned and where you learned from, Roger Rabbit kind of broke a lot of those traditional animation filmmaking rules, even in, in sort of the combination of live action and animation. Was that sort of your influence or more of a, a Bob Zemeckis influence, and how did you sort of revol- resolve some of those conflicts? Well, I, I would point entirely to Bob Zemeckis, and I think anybody that worked on that movie would. He was uh, an amazing visionary on that movie and really wanted to break a lot of the rules, and he, and to an extent, Steven Spielberg said, let's, let's not do what we used to do in uh, movies like Beast Dragon or even Mary Poppins. Let's move the camera, make a very fluid film, and if a uh, tune moves a chair, you see the chair move. If you, you know, picks up his hand, you see the dust marks and fingerprints, and make it as interactive as possible. And that's one of the reasons it became difficult in a lot of the earlier animation combination films. You could animate on twos, which means you could do a drawing every two frames. In Roger Rabbit, we had to do a drawing every frame because the camera was constantly moving. But I chalked that up to Bob Zemeckis and, uh, and to a large extent, Richard Williams, who was really fearless about trying all that and, uh, and you know, kind of pushing ahead and pushing the boundaries of what live action and animation could be. So, and, and I have to imagine that in addition to the challenge of doing it frame by frame, and, and we can't imagine, you know, the, the tens of thousands of, of, of cells that had to be drawn. Another challenge on a sort of a different way must have been maybe not just the combination of live action animation, but it, when you first look at the script, how do you go about a worrying about getting the rights to, and clearances for some of these non-Disney characters and going about animating them? Because I'm sure there was nobody around who probably ever animated somebody like Betty Boop. Right. Yeah, the, you know, interesting, the voices were around because Mae Questel was very much uh, active and, and uh, Mel Blanc did some voices for us, but you know, but we had fans, we had admirers uh, in the animation ranks that would love to do it. 
that people uh, fought over those roles. Uh, a great animator named Dave Spafford, who animated a lot of the uh, uh, Donald Duck Daffy Duck piano duet, and uh, you know it was it was great because he wanted so much to do Daffy Duck, and and then we had uh, long conversations about whether you do the Bob Clampett Daffy Duck or do you do the Chuck Jones Daffy Duck, and and you know they were very much into the style and doing it accurately and having fun with it and uh, i think that's part of what made the film special also and why i think still it's popular and uh, and holds its own to the to that day and to that end one of your biggest accomplishments obviously has to be beauty and the beast not simply because of the financial success that it was and still is but being the first film to be nominated for an academy award when you look back, Don, 20 years later, and you see and hear of, of new generations of kids simply falling in love with the film for the first time and the music and the characters, how does that make you feel looking back? Well, it, it's obviously great. Uh, it's always fun to walk through stores or when you travel to uh, you know Europe or different places around and you see Belle as a princess and... Uh, think back of all the work that went into that, and uh, you know, I think of our art director Brian McEntee designing that yellow dress that she wears in the ballroom, and and now it's everywhere. And every kid that comes to my door on Halloween wears it. And you know, it, 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 you realize how much you affect popular culture when you make these films. Um, Beauty and the Beast was a really special time, not just because of the the film. We knew it was the last of the Red Hot Fairy Tales. We knew it was a special time. Uh, you know, just because of that, but working with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken uh, in, during a period when Howard sadly died of AIDS w- made that film much more resonant, I think, to all of us and, and probably much more of an emotional experience to all of us. So um, it's terrific when you see that live on and you see kids in high school do the stage play of Beauty and the Beast or watch the film or grow up with the characters. And, uh, it, it, and after a certain point, it stops becoming yours. You know, it, it's, a, it's a film. I, I certainly didn't make it alone. We had the great directors, Kirk Wise, Gary Trousdale, and a great team of people. But after a while, it, it, it's kind of owned by the audience, and that's the way it should be. So do you think, and I know sort of Little Mermaid, you know, back in 89, sort of kicked off this renaissance a little bit, but do you think that, that it was really Beauty and the Beast more so that, and especially because you worked on a limited budget, things like that, do you think this is what started this renewed public interest in animation and led to things like Aladdin and Lion King being created and being so successful? Well, I, I, no, I think it was a progression. I think Roger Rabbit did it a little bit. And Little Mermaid was really the breakthrough. I mean, Little Mermaid came out and um, people fell in love with it. And it was the first film that Ashman and Mencken worked on. And it was, uh, in its day, a huge hit. And, and really showed that there was not just a, a little audience for animation. You have to remember, animation was in a backwater, and, and if you could make 10 or 20 or $30 million on an animated film, it was great. Well, now, if it doesn't make $200 million, you're disappointed. Right. And that just, so it just simply wasn't the case. So when Mermaid comes out and, and you know, makes 80 or $90 million, it was a huge hit. And uh, that's the one that really changed things. And, uh, and Beauty and the Beast, I think, stands on the shoulders of that movie and, and Aladdin and Lion King. And what's so interesting about this 10-year period we've been talking about is the progression of uh, successes, the building of the art form, the development of characters like uh, Glenn Keane and Andreas Deja and Eric Goldberg and John Lasseter and Tim Burton. And all these people are kind of maturing through this 10-year period. And it becomes this crucible from which the modern animation industry was built out of those times. And uh, so I think that that progression from Roger Rabbit to Little Mermaid, Restoration Under is in there as a technical breakthrough, and then uh, certainly Beauty, Aladdin, and Lion King are what makes this era so unique. So when you talk about that, you know, you, you sort of talk about Lion King as, as the crescendo of this renaissance, but two years later you produce what I personally think is a very underrated and, and still a very beautiful film to watch, which is Hunchback. Not quite, maybe as, certainly not as popular as what preceded it. What do you think changed between Lion King and Hunchback, for either from a production standard, you know, from the company, or even just simply animation? 
Well, the the work, I think, continued to mature. The drawing, the artwork, uh, continued to grow and change. And I think Hunchback is probably one of the most um, sophisticated films we made during that period. And I'm, I'm extremely proud of it. I think musically and artistically, it kind of went to a new level. Uh, the audience, you know, certainly box office as a judge of the appreciation of these characters, the box office fell off in that period of the next, you know, five to ten years. Uh, Hunchback and uh, movies like Tarzan and Lilo and Stitch certainly were successes during that period. But uh, I think a couple things happened. I think the audience started to see a pattern in the work and see the animated musical as something that they had seen now for five or ten years. And audiences are fickle. Audiences get tired. Audiences um, are, can see patterns. And if you make, uh, you know, say, westerns and cowboy movies for ten years, they're going to start saying, well, okay, I've seen a lot of cowboy movies, but can we see something else? If you make Harry Potter movies for ten years, the audience gets tired of that and wants to move on. And I think that's a little bit what happened. The work continued, in my opinion, to be extraordinary. The audience wanted to move on. And what they moved on to in that period was Pixar films, because the very, you know, 1995, the year that Pocahontas came out, and uh, the next year was Hunchback, Toy Story comes out, and then Bugs Life, and then you start to see something fresh. So the audience looks at it and migrates to, um, you know, a fresher style visually and something that's really engaging visually and at the time um, the world was having a love affair with the computer that they're still on uh, and to be able to look at a movie that was uh, made with the aid of a computer was I think so fascinating and different that that became the new thing well let's just take a second and talk about this CGI versus the traditional hand-drawn animation you alluded to before you know the fact that CG has has dominated filmmaking and the some of these films grossing incredible amounts of money. Admittedly, they are beautiful to watch on their face, but by the same token, this past year, Princess and the Frog gets released and yeah. significant for many reasons, not the least of which is the fact that it's animation. And I, when I saw the film, I personally felt it was maybe the first of many steps returning to those glory days of hand-drawn animation because it had that beautiful scenery, those compelling characters, a, a wonderful soundtrack and score, but really it has that look, and I put that look in air quotes, that CG just cannot replace. Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it's true. It's a different style, and both, I mean, both mediums, they're tools. They're not um, styles into themselves, and we haven't begun to see what uh, computer graphics can do. I think if you look at Avatar, you see well, there's a whole other look out there it's very different, um, and I think even with the pencil and paper, we haven't really begun to see all the styles that are out there, uh, because the styles aren't created by the pencil or the pixel. The styles are created by human beings, and so I think what is interesting is we're just at the beginning of a very long journey of seeing very interesting filmmakers come along who now have grown up with all these movies, and you know, might get a little tired of them and want to push the craft out and the style out into new directions. And so I think you're going to see a lot of new directions and a lot of people, uh, you know, pushing into styles and storytelling styles that we haven't seen before. Uh, but it all does come back to story. Nobody goes to the theater to see a style. Uh, people go to the theater to suspend their disbelief and see a great story. Exactly. And it's going to be interesting uh, to see where hand-drawn animation goes. Obviously, people are, are ready to start lining up for Toy Story 3 now, but I, I think a lot of us are looking forward to seeing what Tangled, formerly known as Rapunzel, uh, looks like later on this yep. year. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, uh, again, the movie business is a fashion business. And uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of room for great films out there and the audience will move around and sample those films and uh, leave their money at the box office of the most interesting, inventive films and the most engaging stories out there. And that's the way it should be. It really should be. And you are, are certainly sort of expanding the scope and the breadth of what you're working on. You were the executive producer for really what was kind of a landmark nature film, which was Earth uh, as part of the Disney Nature film label. Uh, this year, you're the producer on Oceans, another documentary on the seas but speaking of documentaries let's talk about 
the one that you have coming out on March 26th, which is Waking Sleeping Beauty. I think the, the thrill of doing this documentary is to celebrate the people we worked with. And Peter and I both, and, and uh, Peter produced the film, and I directed it and produced it. We wanted to take you in the rooms that we were in at the animation. We felt the story hadn't been told. And we wanted to actually take you there, sit you there, put you at the tables with Roy Disney, with Michael Eisner, with Jeffrey Katzenberg, with Glenn Keane, with Eric Goldberg, and say, this is what it's like. So we made a decision early on to make the film with archival footage. And, and so it's a very unusual documentary because of that. There's no new footage in it. You hear modern voices and recollections, but it's very much uh, footage that was shot at the time in the 80s and 90s. And because of that, um, it transports you. It puts you there into a environment that um, you know was was alive and rich and the the kind of uh, you know place where all these movies grew out of and you can see the energy in the air and I think that was our goal with this movie is to say it was a special time it was a winning season it was like a you know the Chicago Bulls or the Lakers or something where you have this amazing winning season and a perfect storm of people and circumstances that led to this, uh, you know, renaissance of an art form. And that's what the movie's all about, and I think that's why people are excited about it. And I think you're right. I think the appeal, Donna, of the film is the fact that you are using nothing but archival footage. It gives us a chance to go back in time, see behind the scenes, which may be very pedestrian to you, but for us is very exciting to see the guys walk around and show the animators at their table, so much more so than you sitting, you know, in, in an office somewhere recollecting uh, about uh, those times. Yeah, we thought that. We we actually put that on our avid. When we were editing the movie, we said, let's let's have no guys, let's have no talking heads, no guy, old guys reminiscing, because we see that a lot on DVD bonus material, and this, if anything, was not a DVD bonus feature. This was a, a feature film documentary, and so it allowed us to try some different styles, and so you won't see any guys reminiscing on the screen. You will see people talking in interview situations, but you'll see, you know, Roy Disney sitting down in 1984 talking about, uh, you know, the cataclysmic takeover of the company that he orchestrated. And, and Roy's not with us anymore, and it's very emotional for me, and I'm sure for the audience, to see the contributions of these great men and women, and I include, uh, you know, Jeffrey and Michael and, so many people in that phrase, they were great guys, and they, during this period especially, revolutionized uh, a part of Hollywood and the animation business in a way that we're still benefiting from today. Absolutely. I, I can tell you that I'm, I'm personally very excited to see it, and uh, I'm only disappointed that it's not going to be released at the end, end of March anywhere near where I live. Where are you at, Lou? I'm in uh, South Florida. Oh, great. Yes, I mean, I'll be at the Sarasota Film Festival, so come up and say hi. Absolutely. Absolutely. When is that? Do you know offhand? Uh, it is in April. Okay. Uh, I, I go to their website, but I'm, I'm absolutely flying out. I'm going to show it at Disney World, and uh, we're showing it in Orlando, and then I'll be at Sarasota for that film festival. So, um, yeah, see if you can make it up. I'd love to have you see it. Yeah, that would be great. would love to. Don, thanks so much. Really appreciate uh, not just this morning, but, but every, everything you've done. No, thanks, Lou. It means a lot to me. It really does. And uh, it's a pleasure talking with you. So I'm joined now by Peter Schneider, former president of feature animation for Walt Disney Studios and president of the Walt Disney Studios, who was really largely responsible for turning the feature animation department around in that golden age that we've talked about. From, And he also goes on to help form the partnership with Pixar and was studio chief. And he's now created this documentary with Don Hahn, called Waking Sleeping Beauty. So first, Peter, I want to welcome you to the WDW Radio Show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I also have to say thank you to you as well, uh, much as I did to Don, as, as somebody who fell in love with the films you created during that decade and, and saw them in the theaters, and now somebody who has been able to introduce them and share them with my young kids. I need to thank you as a parent as well. Well, you know, it, uh, we enjoyed making the movies. It was a thrill to be here at this company making them. It's an amazing company, and it was an amazing period of time. And I'm thrilled to be able to make a documentary sort of chronicling this period and showing everybody what really happened. So let's talk about the film itself. First and foremost, 
why did you sort of feel the need to make this movie now? Well, I've been trying to make this movie for about 10 years. And something extraordinary happened at the Walt Disney Company in animation between 1984 and 1994. And I've always wanted to capture the story and, and to emotionally tell why it happened. Why does creativity happen? And I, as you know, the principals, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Roy Disney, have not always had the best relationships with each other, kind of rocky. And they didn't want to talk about this period of time. And about two years ago, everybody agreed it was time to tell this story. And so I, I seized the moment. I went to Don Hahn. I said, Don, let's go tell this story together. Went to then former chairman of the studio, Dick Cook, and Dick said yes. And for the next year and a half, Don Hahn, myself, and a writer by the name of Patrick Pacheco, went and made this movie about this extraordinary period of time with these really interesting footage about how these movies were made and the tensions that surrounded them as we made them. And I think that's the thing. I think a lot of people will say, well, you know, I've read this. I've heard these stories before about what happened during the Eisner era, and, but never from this perspective. I mean, journalists have told the story, but they were never there. They weren't part of the rise and the fall during this animation renaissance that takes place during this decade. You know, yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's an extraordinary period of time, and... As you know, as you lived it, you, your kids watch it, uh, the, the emotional connection to these movies is overwhelming. I admit that I still, I still cannot watch Mufasa die without, you know, breaking up just a little, all right, a lot. So. <laughs> right, and a lot of what the movie trades on are those movies. It is the emotion that you bring to it, but we tell you a story you don't know. And I think even if you are a Disney buff and you've seen all the DVDs and you've seen all the making of pieces and you are a collector, you don't know this story. And part of the reason we want to tell it was it is so fascinating. Right. And, and I, I, think Don, I think Don's technique, which was only to use archival footage. There is not a present interview. If there's talking, there are no talking heads. All the interviews are voiceovers, but everything is shot before 1994, and we transport you back to this period of time. And from a fan perspective, from a Disney enthusiast perspective, it's fascinating for us to be transported back and to feel like we are stepping behind the curtain and to see what really was going on there and to see the people that you may read their credits quickly as they go by or, or hear about them as producers or, or lead animators on a film, but don't get to know their stories. And, and it's about, much like the animated films that were so successful, it's about the people. And, and you refer to it often as that perfect storm of people. And I guess sort of, sort of like that perfect combination of music and animation and character and story that makes a film like Lion King so successful was this sort of that perfect collaboration of everybody on the team? Yeah, it's about people. This movie is about people. It's about the passions of people, the foibles of people, the brilliance of people, the brilliance of artists, the brilliance of management, the, the, the failings of artists, the failings of management. It really is a human story. We delve into the human story of both success and why the success stopped in terms of the people. Why people come, people go. Many people died in this period of time, uh, passed away. Uh, Howard Ashman, Frank Wells, uh, key people, all for dramatically in moments in our history, passed. And uh, as we all know, Roy just passed. Roy Disney just passed in December. And I'm so thrilled to be able to have had the opportunity to capture Roy's last words, to show Roy the movie, to celebrate the importance of Roy Disney's uh, tenure at the company, his belief in animation, his belief in me and Don and all the animators, and his passion for this business brought it back from the dead. You know, and it's, and it's important to be clear about something. You know, and this not only chronicles this sort of meteoric rise and this, this true renaissance in Disney animation, this is not always a pixie-dusted view of how they were created because you really want people to understand what was going on from an insider's view and sort of some of those tough times that I'm sure were you were going through during this decade as well. Yeah, I mean, we don't pull in our punches. This is not a puff piece, as we like to say. It's not a puff piece. It's not made by the Walt Disney Company. It's not a 
house organ, Don and I wanted to tell our version of the true story of what happened, of the fights, the arguments, the passion, the joy, because there was much joy in this period of time. And people in their books and articles failed to capture the joy of this period of time. They may have captured the success, they may have captured the arguments amongst the executives, but they never captured the joy. And our job was to really show both sides of this and show why there was so much joy in the making of these movies. And it comes across on the screen. If you like the movies, you will love seeing this because it transports you into the world of how these movies were made. So when you look back, Peter, can you think, is there maybe a moment or is there a point where you realize this really is the pivotal point forward in the animation department and really, I think, for the whole company, both positively with what was being produced and then on the same hand, was there that same moment or that same catalyst when that dream starts to start of change a little bit in the early 90s? So going forward and going backwards, um, individual moments or something that sticks out for you that you think made those things happen? You know, I suppose there were always signposts along the way of, gosh, this is important. But I think you only see that when you look back. You know, was it the extraordinary work on Who Framed Roger Rabbit that you look back and say, boy, that was really influential. I'm not sure we knew it at the moment. We sort of had desire to be good, and Bob Zemeckis was always talking about topping Mary Poppins and topping this and how to do it better. Uh, Did we really believe it? I think we believed it because we wanted to. Did we know we were doing good? No. Did we ever know in terms of Little Mermaid? that we were writing extraordinary songs? No. I think the real pivotal moment when everybody said, oh, it has worked, was Beauty and the Beast, when it was nominated for an Academy Award and won a Golden Globe. Then everybody said, oh, we've had validation from the outside. Hollywood has recognized an art form it had never recognized before. Uh, I mean, they'd recognized Walt's work, but not in the last 40 years had they recognized the work of the artists. I think that was the key moment of realization. So you you really maybe hit the zenith with The Lion King. And, and what do you think maybe, you know, was the death of Frank Wells, is that what started the decline or, or was there, there more to it than, than just that? A lot of people point specifically to Frank Wells as what led to things turning around negatively. Well, we, we talk about it in the movie. Uh, this whole issue of credit, who deserves credit, money, there was so much money being made by these movies during this period of time. How much should the artists get? Uh, it was an art form that didn't have lawyers or agents part of it when I got here in 1985. By 1995, 1996, 94, everybody had an agent, everybody had a manager. The, the Hollywood had recognized this as a valid business. Other studios were starting to produce movies. They wanted the talent. There was competition. So... The market forces changed the way things happened. Also, the death of Frank Wells changed the company fundamentally. Frank was the peacemaker. Frank was the man who glued and held everything together on an emotional level. And when he died, there wasn't that glue. And maybe everything would have, Jeffrey would have left anyway. Maybe things would have changed anyway. But one always can point to the death of Frank and say that was a markation, a demarcation of a big sea change that happened to the Disney company when Frank died. I have to imagine, like you said, you used the term peacemaker, and it probably very much was that. And this is why I'm very curious to see the film, because so many people you're working with and so many personalities. And, and Peter, forgive, you know, forgive me if it's much of a stretch to say maybe a lot of big egos in the room. Talk about some of the people that you worked with or for, you know, like a, a Jerry Katzenberg. Well, everybody, everybody at this company was extremely talented, whether it was Jeffrey Katzenberg or Michael Eisner or Howard Ashman or Glenn Keane or John Musk or Ron Clements, and everybody was a strong personality. And they exhibited their strong personalities in different ways. And in the movie, we talk about Howard getting upset, and, uh, but he got upset because he was passionate about the movie. I got upset, and we talk about that in the movie, because the artists were not taking it seriously. They were not trying to change the world. 
Jeffrey worked around the clock. Jeffrey was in at in six o'clock in the morning and didn't leave until midnight. And we all had our ways of expressing our desires to make things perfect. And it was an extremely exciting period of time because everybody focused on the work. And if you didn't, uh, there's an old joke here at the company, if you didn't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. <laughs> that the, the, the culture was, this was your life. If you wanted to make a difference, come here and make a difference. And it was a really heady period of time because, as I say in the movie, during Aladdin, everything we touched turned to gold. Every movie was bigger than the last. It was a period of time, as John Musker says, that animation no longer was a kid's medium. It was being taken seriously. It was a major filmmaking tool. Computers were changing the world. We were at an apex and nascence of extraordinary change, and it was an amazing period to be part of, and this movie chronicles that idea. Something happened, and here's why maybe it happened, and the excitement of it, and the joy of it, and go see the movie and relive it, and that's why it was so powerful. And even more so than than wanting to see and hear more about the executives and some of the things that change there, I mean, this was such an amazing convergence and I always think back I said Walt's brilliance was in the fact that he knew to pull the best people together and pull the best from them here during this time you've got today's brightest talent you've got you know it's a who's who John Lasseter Musker Bird Clemens Don Bluth all these people coming together and it just sort of like you said was that that perfect storm of all these talents and all these creative passionate people working together how about the animators? Do we get a chance to see a lot of these people, too, in the film working and struggling and maybe relieving some of their stress? Of course. And they're a major part of it. You can't do a movie about animation and not celebrate the artists. I think the, the, the balancing of this is it's about the group of people, not just about Michael, Jeffrey, and Roy. It's about the artists, their passion, their joys, their, their drawing skills, their artistry. It's a celebration of this period of time of this group of people that did this. And the artists, you know, in, whether it's the Margarita Party, whether it's the Apocalypse Now sequence, there are so many moments that bring tears and laughter to your eyes that, oh my God, did that really happen? And that's what's so special about the movie. All the stuff happened, like any other workplace, but people were just so amazed and had so much fun here during this period of time and it's a celebration of those artists so you think maybe it it's more of an inspiring story about the the positive change as opposed to and although there's elements in there less of a, a sad look back at oh, some tough this times is not, Lou, this is not sad Lou this is more it's inspirational it's uplifting it is it makes you want to go out and change the world so everybody go see the movie and go change the world. It's an amazing feeling. Well, the, the, the film opens Friday, March 26th, in limited release in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Chicago. Peter, if people cannot get to a theater in one of those cities, will it be released in other markets, or will it eventually be available on DVD? It'll be available on DVD, and if you uh, make enough noise and demand that come to your theater in your local area, maybe it'll get there. I'm hoping that it'll, it'll expand. It's a documentary. It's hard to distribute documentaries, but it's about local demand. If you have a school, a university, an organization that shows movies, ask for it, and we will show it at your university, at your school, at your film festival. It's a centerpiece for education and business schools, and it's about people demanding to see the movie. Well, as somebody who now lives in Florida and spends a lot of time at Walt Disney World in Orlando, I could almost guarantee, I will guarantee you, Peter, that if it were to play there, we would be get, we would get a very, very large crowd uh, probably to come see it more than once because I think this is, it sounds just like a great film for anybody who's not only a fan of the films of the era, but Disney animation history or even some of the people who are currently part of the Disney company Again, that, that archival footage and the voice interviews with all these major players, um, it's going to be very interesting to see the people behind the Renaissance and the decline. And again, that, that inspirational creative period 
for the company and really an animation history. Thank you, Lou. I really appreciate it. I'm going to put a link to the trailer for Waking Sleeping Beauty on WDWRadio.com in this week's show notes. I want to thank you, Peter Schneider, as well as Don Hahn, for not only taking the time to talk to me today, but for what you did making this film and for the years and years of incredible work in creating Disney magic for generations of Disney film fans. Lou, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bye. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tune in. Thanks also to Don Hahn and Peter Schneider, not just for their work at Disney Feature Animation, but for joining me on the show and looking forward to seeing Waking Sleeping Beauty, which opens in select theaters on March 26th. I'll put links in this week's show notes to the trailer and where you can find out more information about the documentary film. Also, Huge thanks go out to everybody who came out to the meet of the month, whether personally or virtually, in the box this past Saturday. Had a great time getting to meet and see so many new and old faces outside the American Adventure Pavilion and inside on the box. Again, thanks for taking the time, either out of your vacation or out of your day, to come by or to tune in. Also, this past weekend... I had an opportunity to attend the D23 one-year anniversary event in Walt Disney World, as well as the second annual Disney Princess Half Marathon. No, I didn't run, but I did cheer. So I want to say congratulations first to D23 for their one-year anniversary, as well as everybody who participated in the Disney Princess Half Marathon and the 5K run the day before. I will discuss both of these great events further on upcoming shows, I'm also going to share some photos, videos, etc. Definitely stay tuned for that. Don't forget, if you have any questions you want me to answer on the show, you can email me at lou at wdwradio.com or if you want to be heard on the air, you can call the toll-free voicemail line at 888-703-2171. Stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll play some of your voicemails at that time. Be sure and come by www.radio.com. Lots of stuff going on there. Lots of changes, too, coming in the next week or two. So definitely stay tuned. First, be sure you sign up for the free email newsletter. That has uh, information, articles, links, exclusive offers, lots more. You'll find a link for that right on the homepage. Be sure and come by. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com slash Mangello. And join the WDW Radio page over at Facebook. That's facebook.com slash WDW Radio. I've been saying the last couple of weeks, if you have tried to add me as a personal friend, I have unfortunately hit Facebook's imposed limit of 5,000 friends. I'm trying to resolve what to do with that. I know I have a lot of friend requests. I am not ignoring you. Just trying to figure out what to do because I cannot add you. I also can't add fan pages. So trying to see what I can do for the meantime, please go over, join the page over at facebook.com slash WDW Radio. Been really busy, like I said, with lots of projects going on, some changes coming to the site, some new things I'm going to announce and release very, very soon. Also, just got finished proofing issue 10 of Celebrations Magazine. Really excited about this one. There's some great articles on unique topics, so many wonderful contributors that we have expanding the scope of what we can cover and what we love about Disney and Walt Disney World. Remember, we still are looking for contributors, whether it's an article, a letter to the editor, your photos, suggestions. You want to help out on the backside. You want to help out maybe with sales and marketing and distribution. By all means, please feel free to email me at lou at wdwradio.com. And for more information, to subscribe or for back issues, go over to celebrationspress.com. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel, you can visit them over at mousefantravel.com. They are my official and recommended travel provider for all your vacation planning needs. All-Star Vacation Homes, they have more than 150 unique, wonderful homes and condos within five miles of Walt Disney World. I've stayed at them in the past. I've broadcasted from them in the past. Really a great way to spend your vacation. And if you're thinking about buying or selling the Disney Vacation Club, think about doing it through resale 
and go visit Chantel and her team over at dbcbyresale.com. Now, I did say I did do a live broadcast this past weekend from Walt Disney World during the meet of the month. Thank you again for everybody who came by. It was a lot of fun. I know it was a little hectic because it was so busy, but definitely stay tuned. I'm going to do another one of those very, very soon. So definitely stay tuned to Facebook and Twitter, as well as the forums over at WDWRadio.com. That's the best way to get updates as to when I'm going to be doing it. Speaking of upcoming events, we are getting inching closer and closer day by day, hour by hour. And you can tell I am very, very excited about the WDW Radio Cruise aboard the Disney Dream. It's going to be February 27th, 2011. Lots and lots of fun things planned. We're going to start revealing some of the things we have going on above and beyond the fact that we're just going to be on the all-new Disney Dream just about a month after its initial sailing. It really is going to be fun. If you want to be part of the group, you want more information to see some photos, see some videos, get links to where we discuss the cruise, head on over to www.radiocruise.com. You can also get a free quote there. Remember, we will be able to sell cabins for as long as until the ship sells out, although there are some categories that have already sold out. So if you're thinking about joining us, definitely go on. You have to sort of go through www.radiocruise.com to get your quote so you can be part of the group that we're putting together. And remember, if you are coming on the cruise, head on over to the forums. There's lots of discussion going on about what we have planned. If you've got your room assignment, there's threads going on specifically about people who are on Deck 7 and Deck 6 really shaping up to be a good, good time. Again, more information, www.radiocruise.com. As always, my friends, if you like the show, all I ask is that you please help spread the word, let others know about it, review the show over in iTunes, come say hi on Facebook, come say hi on the forums, and please come by, say hi at the next meet of the month. I will be announcing April's dates and location, which is probably going to be in Disney's Animal Kingdom very, very soon. Stay tuned. But most of all, thank you so much for taking the time and tuning in each and every week you guys give me the fuel to get this show out every week and uh, it is truly a blessing to be able to share my passion for Disney with you in this way each and every week so for that I thank you I hope to inspire you by telling you to just remember that following your dream is possible take that first step and let nothing stand in your way and have a great great week everybody thanks again See ya. Hi, Lou. This is Cindy from Michigan. Just wanted to say thank you for the podcast. And we met you at the Meet of the Month in February, and my son Chris was so excited to meet you, and you were so nice, so gracious, and just it really made his day. I also wanted to say that listening to your podcast has taken us from being just Disney freaks to Disney geeks, because now we look up, we look down, we point out things that nobody else knows, and I always have to say it's because of you. I would listen to Lou and whatever the information happens to be. And we spent a lot of time at the Animal Kingdom at Restaurantosaurus just reading the notes and things that you had mentioned during your DSI. And I really wanted to thank you for that because I didn't really appreciate the Animal Kingdom until I, I started listening to your show. So I just wanted to say thank you for that and for being so positive and having such a nice positive message on your show. I have listened to a couple of other podcasts where they were kind of negative and Yours is just always uplifting, and I just wanted to say thank you for that, for taking the time out to do the show and the magazine and the meets. It just really means a lot to people like myself. So thanks, Lou. Hey, Rod, Lou, it's Rod and Anita Wheaton. We just ran the 5K, Princess 5K over here at Epcot. We want to call you from the event. We just crossed the finish line. So, big mate, we're wearing our, looking for our WDW radio pins. We wore them for the race, and we wanted to say Love the show, and see you at the meet of the month later, guys. See ya. Keep moving forward. Hey, Lou, this is Mark Lorenzo, and I'm at the D23 event in Magic Kingdom, and uh, I'm watching Just Lost Wishes, and it's an amazing event. It's March 5th, a Friday night, and, you know, come to find out, I, I saw this guy that looks a lot like you, and he actually sounds like you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put him on here because I think he's your double. Here he is. Mark, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm clearly at least five, six and a half on a good day, which means I'm immensely taller than any Lou Mangiello. 
Well, thank you, Lou Mangello Double. And we're having a great time here, and uh, we love the show, and uh, just love being part of WDW Radio. Thanks, Lou. Hey, Lou. It's Andre. I'm calling from Big Thunder Mountain in Magic Kingdom. Um, just waiting here for to look it off. Um, I just want to call you from the park and tell you that we were here. And I'm also looking forward to that meeting in the month tomorrow, so I'll talk to you soon. All right, thanks. Have a nice day. Bye. I saw you. Hi, Lou. This is Randy calling from Snowy, Lansing, Michigan. I have a response to a caller who was wondering about the monorails running from the TTCs to the Magic Kingdom on the early mornings. I was down there in August. We were staying on property, and we got to the TTC early to take the monorails over. The cast members checked our IDs as we came into the area, and we got in line to ride the monorails over and waited and waited, and finally someone asked when the monorails were going to get over to the Magic Kingdom, and the cast members said, we expect our resort guests to use the, the, the Disney bus transportation. And I've never, ever seen that posted any place as, as far as the Magic Kingdom, and that would only apply to the Magic Kingdom because the other parks you can, you can drive to. I don't know if anyone has ever uh, experienced this before or if this was just a temporary thing, but uh, just wanted to let you know that uh, if you get to the Magic Kingdom early, you may not be able to take the monorail over to the park. Enjoy your show. Thanks a lot, Lou. Hey, Lou. This is Mary Jo Collins. I'm calling from the D23 anniversary, one-year anniversary event in Walt Disney World. Oh, my gosh. We're having, like, the best time. And you're not going to believe this, but I saw someone. It looks He looks just like you. I'm kind of wondering if maybe they have a new Lou character in the park. I don't know. Maybe so. So, Anyway, we're having a great time. Just wanted to uh, give you a shout-out. See ya. Bye. Hi, Lou. This is Tina from Ottawa, her Disney geek husband, Bob. Hello. And her sons, Maddie and Ty. Say hi, Lou. Hi, Lou. We just met you at, at uh, the meet of the month, and we're actually still looking at you, and you're still talking to the people, taking the time and being such a nice person that you are. And um, we met you. <laughs> I'm the pathetic one that cried and was on your podcast just the other week and uh, with the D23 and whatnot. And, and hi, Josh, too. <laughs> Big fans. And, uh, yeah, we just we said at the end of that uh, message, I said that our next goal was to meet Lou. And, well, we did. And uh, it's amazing just how everything has fallen into place for us with all our Disney dreams and stuff. And, We'll always keep streaming for sure, and uh, and you are as amazing a person as I thought you would be to meet you. You are the person, your podcast is just like listening to a friend, and, and uh, you have just even meeting you. You have a heart of gold. You just feel like such an amazing, caring person when they're listening to you, and then to meet you and realize you're that same person, and you said... And now I'm going to cry again. <laughs> but you said it was good to cry. <laughs> but anyways, you are a good person. And it's so nice to see that there's people out there inspiring people like you. And, uh, man, I, I just we're just thankful to know you. So we'll let you go before this becomes pathetically long. <laughs> but thanks again for everything and signing our son's autograph books and, and just being the person you are. Thank you. Have a great day. And see ya. Hey Lou, this is Mark Lorenzo And we're on the live show with you Talking to the box people And uh, just wondering where you are You've got a big line outside With people uh, wanting to sign your autograph So must be nice to be famous uh, Okay, love yourself And uh, lots of love from the box people And we're at Epcot during the live show So hopefully everybody... Uh, from Fox people, when we listen to the show, uh, will be able to say they saw me leave this voicemail. All right. Thanks, Lou. Hey, Lou. It's Tina from Ottawa again. I just wanted to say thanks to the people in the line that I met while we were waiting to talk to you. There was Marla behind me, the people with the WDW Radio T-shirts, 
And uh, Jennifer's mom in front of me, thank you so much. I really enjoyed listening to your stories, too. And uh, it was really nice meeting you. And uh, you guys, all you Lou fans are awesome. And it was nice to actually meet all the Disney Geek fans that surrounded us. It was nice. Thanks, Lou. Have a great day. See ya. Bye.